0: for making the choice to come and worship today. I don't think we can underestimate, especially as we gather in one service um, this Sunday morning, to come and likely meet some new faces of people that attend the other service than you do, but also to be together and to worship together and say to God, this is how we want our year to be. No, it doesn't mean that we're in church every day, but what it means is that we are the church every day, that we worship no matter what, no matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances, it was we come together and we worship, amen? There's a thing in uh, literary functions in uh, writings that you may have heard of, our English teachers or teachers in general may know of this tool. It's a tool that's used in laying out a story and that's called a story map. Well a story map is used to map out the writing of a new story or even to dissect and evaluate a bit a story the various components of that story that's already been written. The basic components of a story map can be shown on this picture here. You have title, author, setting, characters, and then these three key components. You have a beginning and a middle and an end. Now, I'm sure for those of you that really are into this English writing composition stuff, you're saying, oh, Dan, that's so basic. Yeah, I know that. There are all kinds of other things that feed into this. But when it comes down to it, this is kind of the foundation of a story to make it a good story. So in the beginning, that first block on the left, it is very much an introduction of the characters. It is a laying out of the setting or the context of what's taking place. And then it's a presentation of the problem. It's an introduction of the plot of what this story is going to be. And then you have this middle component, and it includes a series of events It may be three, it may be more, but these events carry the characters and the context, the setting, and begin to build them one upon the other to the height or the climax of the story's plot. And this includes the peak of conflict and the beginning of the resolution of the story. And then there's the end, that component to the far right. It is the resolution of the story, where each of the characters find some conclusion in the events that have taken place. This is the completion and the fulfillment of the plot. Now, each of these components that you see up here, the beginning, the middle, and the end, they make a great story. And you may be attuned to one over the other that you really like. But there is something that I don't think any of us can deny, and that is a good ending. Now you may say, well, I don't always like the happily ever after ending. I kind of like a a tragedy. Well, maybe you do. But even a good tragedy has an ending that is strong, an ending that pulls the pieces together. There's something about a good ending one writer, Glenn C. Strathy, says, A good story ending must make the preceding events meaningful. We like a good ending because we like a good story. The past year, we have been on a journey as a church that, in my mind, has been so beautiful as we've walked through the story of God. This grand story. Now, whether you followed in uh, Randy Frazee's book, The Story, or whether you went in and read the entire biblical writing. It's an incredible story. It's a story that has struck us. It is a story that has stopped us in our tracks. It's a story that has drawn us in. It is a story that has taught us. It is a story that has amazed us. It is a story that has left us in wonder in awe of God. After all, it is the story of God, and there's no other story like it. And so I thought it would be a little fun today as we go into this final chapter. If you remember the beginning of December, I said, hey, we, we have one more chapter of the story that we haven't, we haven't spent time on Sunday morning talking about. We're going to do that on January 1st. Well, hey, if you missed a few things, it's January 1st. So we're going to talk about this story. So if... You were to take God's story as we see written in the canon, in the scripture, this is a little bit of what these pieces may look like for us in a story map. So let's look at the beginning. The beginning may be described and uh, laid out on a story map in a very basic way as creation and then the fall and the exodus and then life in the promised land. Now, I know there's more here, but these are some of the key components of the beginning of this grand story of God. And then you get into the middle, having in those beginning pieces laid out some themes, laid out characters, laid out the setting. You come to these middle components, the birth of Christ that we just celebrated this Christmas season. And then Christ's earthly ministry including His first coming, Christ's death. And then that peak, that climax, that height of the story where the problem has been presented and we begin to see a resolution. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of all resolution in any life in this grand story of God. Now, I want to remind us here is that this story is not a fictitious story. It's real life. It's a story we're living. And so there's this end piece. This end piece, which is the second coming of Christ. Now, there's some fascinating things about this second coming of Christ. More than we could ever hope to talk about. In a few moments we have on a Sunday morning. But I know many of you, you get fired up when you think about the second coming, and particularly when anybody in any church setting with church people says, Revelation, there is no book that creates more conversation and even more um, maybe anxiety than the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation, first and foremost, is this. I want you to hear me clearly on this, because it's not what I hear most of the time from people. The book of Revelation is foremost this. It's found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of, from, Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's about a second coming. In all the prophecy, all the visions, all of the symbols, and no matter whether you're a millennialist, a pre-millennialist, or if you have no idea what any of that means in terms of where we are in the second coming of Christ, the bottom line is, no matter how you interpret it, what you look at in the book of Revelation, it is about Jesus first. And that's huge for us. It's absolutely huge for us. Because this ending of this story, this grand story of God as we read in Scripture, is a story of warning and consolation, announcements of future judgment and blessing. And it's communicated in so many different ways. Some, and again, whether you look at it literally or figuratively or however, the bottom line is clear. It's about Jesus and that He is coming again. So I want us to spend just a moment today and I want us to look at what is the most unique ending in any story I believe ever written, a story that has more impact on real life than any other story ever. I have a feeling that most of you believe that very same thing. And so it's important for us to look at this unique ending of the story, this grand story of God, this revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to go to Revelation 22 if you have a copy of Scripture with you today. Yes, I'm sorry, those of you that were going to get really excited that I was going to interpret all the bulls and all of those things. Sorry, that's not our purpose today. We see an ending in a story that has had a beginning and a middle. We see an ending to this story of God, of life on earth as we know it. But one of the most unique things about the ending of this story that's relevant for us is that the ending of this story has not taken place yet. We read a lot of stories, and and we read through it, and we read the ending. It's nice and complete in whatever way, tragedy, comedy, happily ever after, but it's done. What makes God's story so unique is that we're reading about the ending, But it hasn't happened yet. And that's very important for us. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, the first part of that verse. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming soon. This book, this ending story, I should say, is all about Jesus Christ returning. And Jesus says very clearly here, Behold, I am coming soon. Now, why does that matter for us as Christ followers? It matters immensely because what it means is while the end has not happened yet, it's coming. And the challenge for us is to think about this not just as a prediction. Often people think about prophecy and they understand that and translate that simply as a prediction. Now, I don't know your definition of prediction, but often prediction in our culture today is like, this may happen. Like those people who predict when the earth is going to end. This is a prophecy because it is truth. It is a prediction, but it's not a prediction like this may happen. We as believers in Jesus Christ have to recognize the reality of the coming kingdom. That's why the ending of this story that we read about in Scripture is so important. 2 Peter 3.10 is on the screen for us. It says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. We go to the second part often, don't we? So wonder how that's gonna happen. Wonder who's gonna burn, wonder who's gonna, all this kind of stuff. Don't don't jump past that first part. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And it begs us, it begs of us, Jesus begs of us, Peter begs of us to say, Be ready. Because he is coming. The ending of this story, while it hasn't happened, doesn't make it a fairy tale. It is going to happen, and we have to be ready. Our focus isn't when. And I think when we go around asking when, it's the wrong question. Because when does it matter? Are we ready is what matters. And what if we knew? What if we knew it was 10 years from now? Does that mean that we loaf around for 10 years? That's not the commands I see in Scripture. What if it was tomorrow? What if it was while we were sitting here today? Are we ready? I know some of you love a good book, you love a good movie, you love a good story. You like writers who kind of hit those things that you want to read. You know that feeling that stirs up in you when you know there's a new story coming? There's a new story coming from that author that you just absolutely cannot wait to read or to watch on the big screen, or even a story that was written and now it's coming out on the big screen and it's mostly a disappointment. You know that feeling, that anticipation, that excitement, that eagerness. What if that described what we felt about this message? I can't wait till Jesus comes, should be our heart. But there's a reason that doesn't happen often. Because another aspect of this story's ending is that it includes some key things of how it ends. And a part of that is seen in the latter part of verse 12. Look at it with me. Revelation 2212 12b. Jesus goes on to say, my reward is with me. Now remember, he says, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. This will instill one of two things in you. This will stir up one of two in- things in you. I'm ready to receive the blessings and reward of Christ and knowing Him. Or absolute terror because you don't feel ready and you're worried about the, the punishment that Christ offered and continues to offer to pay for the penalty of your sins and yet you have failed to accept it, to receive it, to believe it and you know the punishment. Revelation is an incredible, incredibly descriptive book about the punishment. So you have the reward, you have salvation in Jesus Christ, and all the blessings that come along with it that Jesus talks about in this verse. But there's that underlying warning to say, if you don't follow me, and if you read further, you'll see, if you don't follow me, if you don't believe in me, there will be a different type of judgment for you. A result of that, I should say. It's all judgment. That's what Jesus comes to do in the end of this story, as we read about in Scripture. Christ's second coming will bring judgment, and that's why it, it stirs up so much in us. But I will tell you, Scripture is very clear of saying If you have faith in Jesus Christ, you have nothing to worry about. It's not about how many good things you've done. Do those those things matter? Absolutely. They prepare us for what is to come. It comes down to our faith in Christ, to believe that what He has done has been enough, and what He's going to do will be more than enough. If you look on a little bit further in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, Peter carries this theme. It says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, speaking of when uh, Christ comes again, what kind of people ought you be? He's speaking to Christ followers, specifically. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Hence the phrase, Godspeed. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So, then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, at peace with him. The other thing inherent in this ending of this story is we have a choice, church. We have a choice. Most stories end, and they end the way the author wants them to end. And there's no choice. There's no option. But our part in this story, as we are engaged in this story, God, as the author says, you have a choice. It is going to happen, he says, through Jesus. But you have a choice of what your ending will look like when that judgment takes place. And so we see in this passage of Scripture encouragement for people to persevere. Not only to accept Christ initially, but to persevere through every part of it. Because Christ's message, the message of the second coming, is a completion of the message of the first coming, and it is a message of hope. It is a message of assurance. It's a message of victory. I can't underestimate how we view the end really, really describes how we really view those middle components. Our belief in the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Christ, finds fulfillment in how we believe in the second coming. But He's given us so much hope. He's given us so much assurance. He's given us the choice. Now why does that choice matter? Because many would say, well, we just live on this earth and we're here, we have fun, we do some good deeds along the way, we enjoy life, but it's the end. So why does it matter what's next? It's the end. The ending of this story isn't the end. Yes, it's the end of what we read about in Scripture. It's the end of life on earth as we know it. But my friends, that story is the original. There is a sequel coming. And so the question is, is how do we prepare for it? Are we prepared for it? Revelation 22, the next verse, 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus says. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is what we have to cling to because this is why we have a choice. This person, this divine being who became human is why the story as we read it, the story as we know it as life on this earth is not the end. You see, those names, and if you go through the book of Revelation and you look at all the names of Jesus Christ more than anywhere else in scripture what you see is this god man lifted up expressing his deity his ability his strength these names are polar opposites the alpha which is often the beginning the seen as the beginning the omega the end the first and the last, and repeated, the beginning and the end. What that says is Jesus was before and will be forever. Jesus is able, Jesus is adequate to write the ending of this story. But as the primary character in this story, and let me repeat, you are not the primary character of this story As much as the culture wants us to believe, that doesn't mean you're worthless, it doesn't mean you have no value, but you're not the primary character, but you should be looking to the one who is the primary character. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. And in that, those polar opposites, we see the source of all that is good, that all this story is about, and it's the original because the sequel is coming. But this is not one of those things where you don't read the first book, or you don't read the first movie, or watch the first movie, or go to your friend and say, Okay, I know you saw the movie and I want to see the second one. I don't have time to see the first one. Can you kind of fill me in? There's no catching up once Jesus comes, there's no getting your way in by just reading some cliff notes. I don't know if you've ever remembered, those of you who are parents and grandparents, remember of a child sitting on your lap and you're reading a story to them and you're trying everything and all your heart to engage them in the story and they are so stinking fidgety and wired on something, sugar or something, and you cannot get them to sit still. I think that's often an image of what God is trying to convince and show us as his people. Because some people don't want to pay attention. Some people want to go off and do other things that they are, think are more important. My prayer, the prayer of the leadership of this church, is that we will all be ready for the ending. That anybody who walks in the doors of this building, anybody who encounters any of us who are members, who attend this church and believe Jesus is the King, is the Christ, is the Messiah, is that you're ready. And that if you're not ready, when you come in, is that after being in the presence of God in this place with His church, is that you will be ready. Is it going to be a happy ending or is it going to be a tragedy? One of those things are going to happen. Did we get the point of the story? Have we understood the problem? Do we know the resolution and seek and embrace Him? I'll tell you, I'm not much for sequels. I'm not a huge movie watcher. I like to read books, but I'm not much for sequels. Sequels tend to be the the kind of follow-up, or it, 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 it follows a particular circumstance or event. It's a result or a consequence. But let's just be honest. Most sequels that come out of a book or a movie tend to force things. They tend to take the emotions and the feelings and the excitement of that first story and they really try to twist it and, and reproduce and remanufacture something that was very good and beautiful. Now I'm not saying there's no good sequels. But let's just be honest. Most of them are forced. Most of them are just so unrealistic. Many of them are inauthentic. Many of them are let down. Friends, this sequel will not be a letdown. It will not be inauthentic. In fact, it will be more real. We will experience who God created us to be more than ever in this sequel. But how will you prepare? Let's read one more verse. Revelation 22:14. 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. The verb here has a present tense to it. What that means for us is that those who keep washing their robes, confessing their sins regularly, are the ones who demonstrate and understand that they've already washed their robes initially in Jesus Christ and His salvation, the blood of of the lamb, the sacrifice that he has been and continues to be for all who come. How do we prepare for the sequel? What do we do in the meantime? We go about and do whatever we want to do? No. We are obedient. Not obedient to your pastor, so to speak. You're obedient to Christ. Not obedient to your spouse or that accountability partner who seems to always be jabbing you. No, you're obedient to Christ. There's a word in this passage of Scripture that says right. Our right. This is not something we're entitled to. It is a privilege. The tree of life that we receive. Entering those gates of the city. The new Jerusalem. The new heaven. The new earth. That... That Jesus will create after his second coming, after that judgment, has nothing to do with us, our worthiness, our ability. It has all to do with Jesus Christ. It's God's grace. This ending is about God's grace. And for whatever reason, that most of us will never understand on this earth, if ever. So why does God wait? Why not now? Those of us who feel prepared, why not now? Because there's others who aren't. And God does not want to see one perish. I hope that's our heart. But in the meantime, we remember that grace. One of the traditions it has now become that we established, I don't know, Martin, maybe 10 years ago now, is that this first Sunday, as we gather as one body of believers, is that we celebrate through remembrance of that grace that we've been given through Jesus Christ. And that is Holy Communion. Holy Communion is that time and a place for those who have believed and accepted Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for their sins. And we come to remember what He did for us to receive that. He broke His body. That's what this bread represents. When that bread is torn, it's representative of what, how His body was broken on that cross. Dying for the payment for our sins. Because he was able, because he was sinless. None of us can claim that. And then we have the cup, which represents this juice, represents the blood. The blood that was poured out, again, as a payment for our sins. As we spend this time of remembrance today, this is an allusion to the washing of the robes, so to speak. Spoken about in the book of Revelation. So how do we prepare for the sequel? It's not that we have to take communion or should take communion every day. It's about worship. Worship in whatever form honors Jesus Christ. I want you some Sunday, please, now if y'all do it the same Sunday, it won't work. Well, We'll create a mosh pit or something, I guess. But I want you to come and sit on a front row or a closer row. And listen to the voices behind you. I know what happens with the three of us. There's moments we're singing and worshiping. And behind us, raise this worship. And what happens, I know with the three of us, and Janine as well. I know what happened with Martin. Anybody else who sat on this front row, is there's a point you just stop singing. Because you want to hear the worship behind you. You want to hear people singing to their God. But no less significant is watching someone in their element, in their workplace, or in their neighborhood serve in the name of Jesus Christ. It's worship. This is one way we worship in commemorating this main character in this story. So this morning as we come, as Matt and the team come up and prepare to lead us, In singing worship. I'm going to invite those of you. To come to one of the four stations. Two in the front or two in the back. To receive communion. We will do that in the form that's called intinction. And you will simply tear off a piece of bread. And you will dip that piece of bread. In the cup of juice. I'm going to invite those who. Deacons and other pastors. Who are going to be helping serve communion. To go ahead and come up to the table. As we pray over the elements. While we're praying over those elements, here's what I want to remind us of. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are reminded to never take communion in vain. In other words, without confessing our sins. Honestly, there are times that there are not sins I'm aware of. May you it may not be. That doesn't mean we don't confess, it means we come and say, God... For the sins I know I've committed, for the sins I don't know I've committed, I confess that I have committed them. So I encourage you during this time to examine your hearts, examine yourselves, because as Scripture says, we do not want to bring judgment and take this sacrament in an unworthy manner, and that is a manner of non-confession. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ And if you haven't done that, then I invite you to come to one of these altars and do that and then receive communion for the very first time as a believer. Allow this to set the pace for 2017. Allow this to be looking ahead, not just to the new year, but to the second coming, which is a new beginning for all of us. Let's pray. Father, as we gather this morning for communion As we spend time in this sacrament, God, I would ask that you bless these elements. They're mere representations of the true Lamb. But God, yet they remind us of all that you've done through your Son, Jesus. Yes, our time on this earth will end. And until then, we're going to worship you, we're going to honor you, we're going to serve you. And then when that day comes and Jesus returns, we will worship like never before. God, take our singing, take our remembrance of receiving communion in every aspect of our life, exalting and worshiping you, your Son and the Holy Spirit.